If you have a Bible, flip with me to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, just on the tables in the back, there should be a blue softback Bible. It's got your name on it. It's our gift to you. John chapter 11. Um, But I want to start in John chapter 20. Read the screen with me here. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Every book of the Bible has a a kind of a purpose statement. John, right there, gives us the purpose statement of why we have the gospel of John. Really, why God speaks and why he's given us all of the scriptures. He has given us his word so that we would believe. And in the scripture that Nathan just read for us, you heard it a few different times on repeat that Mary or Martha, do you believe that I am Christ? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. There is an emphasis in the gospel of John and in our text in particular on our belief. Now, John chapter 11 is kind of the the pinnacle of the gospel of John. In John chapter 12, he's about to have his triumphal entry. So he's gonna have, Jesus is gonna have his last uh, week on earth where he's gonna be betrayed and mocked and eventually crucified and buried. But in John 20, it says, everything that he did, everything that he said, everything that he is, he has done this so that you would believe. And here in John chapter 11, in this kind of pinnacle of the gospel of John, we see one of his most miraculous of miracles where he raises Lazarus from the dead. And he does it so that Mary and Martha and Lazarus would believe. Look at verse 25 and 26 again from John chapter 11 with me. Jesus said to her, this is to Martha, I am, there's our I am statement, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of journey through the whole of of John chapter 11. And and what I want us to kind of do together is instead of reading the Bible backwards, here's what I mean by that. We already know the end of the story, right? We know Jesus is raised from the dead. We know Lazarus gets raised from the dead. But what I want us to do is kind of resist the urge to already know the end of the story and place ourselves in the moment as we walk through the narrative. Place ourselves in the shoes of Mary and Martha, whose brother is ill, eventually passes away, and is in a tomb for four days before Jesus shows up. And when Jesus does show up on the scene, he confronts Mary and Martha, whose brother has just passed away and says, do you believe me? Now, it's a hard thing to do in the midst of suffering and death and grief. There are many things that cloud our vision of believing in Jesus and upon the words of Jesus. And so instead of uh, knowing how it ends, let's place ourselves in the moment And at the end of it, we're going to look at this I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life and how that changes everything and grants us belief. But here's the main point. Because Christ is risen, we can believe in all things. It's that simple. Because Christ is risen, we can believe him in all things. 
But there are things, again, that cloud our vision of believing the words and the action and the character of Jesus. And so we're going to see what does that in John chapter 11. And we're going to do it by answering three questions. The first one is, how can we believe when events turn bad? How can we believe when it seems like God doesn't care? And then how can we believe when we are full of unbelief? You guys with me? We're good? All right, let's roll. Chapter 11 um, of John is peculiar. Honestly, it's a bit troubling at first glance when you read it. The first question we're gonna ask and attempt to answer is how can we believe when events turn bad? So go all the way back up to the beginning of John, John chapter 11. We're gonna read verses one through five together. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mary uh, or loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Now, if you know your Bible, you know this family fairly well, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were known for anointing Jesus' feet and, and wiping his feet with their hair. They were, they were known, um, you know, Mary was sitting at his feet while Martha was kind of a busybody in the room. They, they met with Jesus post-resurrection. And, and it says there in the text that they, Jesus loved this family. They were particularly close. Well, Lazarus comes down with an illness and Mary and Martha come up with a little game plan. And personally, I'm a big fan of what they come up with. They're like, hey, we know Jesus. Jesus already healed all these people. We're close with him. He loves us. What we're gonna do is we're gonna send a note out to Jesus. He's gonna drop everything and he's gonna come heal our brother Lazarus because of how much he loves us. I love this. This is a great game plan. It's not what you know, it's who you know, right? They know Jesus. They're gonna get Jesus. He's gonna show up on the scene. They are running the right play, which is what makes Jesus's response in verse four so head-scratching. Read verse four again. But when Jesus heard it, when he got the note that Lazarus is sick, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's a common illness. He says he's not gonna die from it. But that's actually not really what Jesus is communicating in that passage. What Jesus is saying in the original language is actually a little bit like a, a riddle. He's saying Lazarus has an illness. It will lead to his death. But the purpose of his death is that God would uh, be glorified and the son of God would be glorified through him. He is saying his death Lazarus's eventual death is all about glorifying God. Here's what Jesus is doing for this family. He is creating a category for Mary and for Martha and for us that we like to avoid, but it's this. Common events in our lives go bad and we are still to glorify God through them. 
He is creating a category of suffering, even and especially for the Christian, and how there is purpose in suffering. A sickness that most often would not lead to death does lead to death, but Lazarus's death ultimately doesn't end in death. It ends in his life and God being glorified through his resurrection and healing. He's creating a category of purpose and suffering for this family. Christian, nothing in your life has happened. Nothing in your life is happening and nothing in your life will happen by chance. And nothing will happen in your life and will be meaningless. There's a worldview called nihilism. Everything is, is without purpose, right? If you watch the Academy Awards this year, almost every movie there that got elected was all nihilistic. Life is purposeless. Just do whatever the blank you want to do, right? Christians forcefully reject nihilism. God is using everything in our lives to grant us belief and to glorify his name, even and especially our suffering when common events turn bad. Listen to me, your life is marked by things that that should go well that don't go well. Maybe I'm just alone in this. Surprising sicknesses. Hard and loveless marriages, crushing tuition debt, dysfunctional families, crippling anxiety, consistent health issues, children who go wayward, hard work situations, diagnoses that just keep getting worse. This is a common theme for every one of us in this room. We are sinful people in a sinful world, and as a result of that, we all suffer. None of us are exempt from that. Even this family whom Jesus loves experiences suffering of the worst kind. And here's our response most often when suffering comes our way. I gotta advocate for myself. I gotta petition my way out of this. I need to find someone else to blame. I have to go into hiding. I need to positively think my way out of this thing. The question you and I ask when we face suffering is this, what is the fastest way I can get out of it? So we always ask, how can I get out of this as quickly as possible? But what the Bible teaches us is that we must reconcile the fact that God does love Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they do suffer simultaneously. Those two things always coexist. And for the Christian in the room, everyone in the room, sinful people in a sinful world marked by suffering, you will suffer. Common events will go south in your world. And you have to reconcile in your heart that even if you suffer, God still loves you. These two things are coexisting for the Christian. We need not ask the question, what is the fastest way I can get out of this? But rather for the Christian, the question is, how can I most glorify God through this? How can God most commonly use me through this? How is God bringing purpose about in my life through this? God's glory and your suffering are not at odds. Your feelings might tell you they are but feelings are fallible. Oftentimes, feelings are pathological liars. 
where God wants us to renew our minds with, with the word of his truth, the word that tells us he cares for us, that he carries us, that he is with us, that he is for us. So how can we believe when common events turn bad? More on that later. Second question. How can we believe when it seems like God doesn't care for us? I'm gonna summarize the next section, verses six through 16, um, and, and, and then we'll get into our chunk that Nathan read for us earlier. So in the first part of the next section, uh, Jesus, again, hears that Lazarus is ill. He says he loves this family, but in verse six, it says that Jesus stayed in his place where he was for two more days. It seems like he doesn't care all that much for Lazarus. He continues to wait. In verses seven and eight, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, let's go back to Judea. Now the disciples were rightly befuddled by this because they were just in Judea and the Jews that were in the city tried to stone Jesus and the disciples to death. And so Jesus is saying like, hey, let's go back to the place where they just tried to kill us. The disciples are like, hey, what, what, we, we kind of want to live. Like, that'd be cool. We'd like to live. Like, why are we going to go back there? Seems like Jesus doesn't care about the well-being of his disciples. And then in verses 11 through 16, Jesus says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm about to go awaken him. And the disciples are like, well, Jesus, if he's just sleeping, he'll wake up on his own in a moment. And Jesus is like real blunt. Lazarus is dead. Just kind of cold and blunt and hard. Like Lazarus is dead and you could have done something about it. Seems like Jesus doesn't care. How can we believe when it seems like God doesn't care about us? Do you ever wonder if God's listening to you? Do you ever wonder if God cares about you? Do you ever wonder if God cares about what's going on in your life and hears your prayers? Like, is that just me? Like, God, I have this need, and I've been asking you and asking you and asking you, can you meet this need? And the need continues to go unmet. God, I've got this anxiety, and I want to be freed from this anxiety, but the more and more that I pray, the more and more the anxiety increases in my life and grips me. God, I struggle with this sin, and I so badly want to overcome this sin, but I, I just can't do it, but I keep coming to you to free me from this sin, but you're not hearing me because you're not freeing me from this sin. God, I, I have these broken relationships. I really want you to mend these things, and I've prayed, and I've asked, and I've worked, and you, God, just have not come through. God, do you care about me? Look, look at verses 14 and 15 of John 11. Then Jesus told them plainly, his disciples, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Another crazy statement. He's dead, but I'm glad I wasn't there so that he did die. It's for your sake. Why? So that you would believe. Here's what's happening in the story. Jesus is moving at his own pace. Jesus is intentionally going slow with the healing of Lazarus. 
Jesus's delay is not Jesus's denial. Okay, so he's moving slow. He's not hearing their prayers. He's not responding to their, their note. As a matter of fact, in verse 17, it says that he shows up on the scene four days after Lazarus has been buried in the tomb. Now, this is important because in Jewish thought, the body and the soul stayed united for four days after death. So there's like a little bit of hope left that after four days, Lazarus would still come back to life. But, but then once it was five days, man, he, the, the soul is gone. There is no hope for him. So if we actually kind of do the math here, um, Mary and Martha write a note. There's a runner that goes to Jesus. He stays in his place for two more days. Then he goes on to Judea. Eventually he travels back to Bethany. Lazarus has already been buried for four days. This is a week or more between Mary and Martha reaching out to Jesus and Jesus showing up on the scene. He is moving slow. And in his slowness, here's what Jesus is doing for Mary and Martha. He's increasing their desperation. He is increasing their desperation. We, we see in verses 18 through 20 that Mary hears that he's coming and she sprints to Jesus. She sprints to Jesus because she is desperate to see him and desperate for him to get there. And here's why desperation is a gift, why Jesus moving slowly is a gift for us. Desperation reveals to us what we place our faith in. Remember, this is about belief. Do you believe Right? So he's saying to Mary and Martha in his slow moving, where's your faith? Is your faith in your brother getting well? Is your faith in your brother getting medical treatment? Is your faith in your brother never getting sick? Or is your faith in me? Is your faith in what I can do? Or is your faith in who I am? And here's what Jesus does for us. When we're suffering in our lives, when common events turn bad, Jesus oftentimes does move slow. Think about those scenarios I just painted. I have this need, I need you to meet this need, and it goes unmet. I have this anxiety, I wanna be freed from this anxiety, but it just continues to increase. This relationship I need mended, this struggle from sin I need to be freed from. Jesus sometimes moves slowly in our lives because he wants to reveal to us what our faith is in. He wants to show us what are we trusting? Do I just want an absence of anxiety in my life or do I want faith in Jesus? Do I simply want my needs met so I can go on my merry way or do I want to be with Jesus? Oh, that we would all know just how desperate we are for every breath, for every dollar, for every minute of sleep, for every meal, for every moment, we are desperate for Jesus to be present in our lives. But, but here's what happens. Jesus shows up. He gets there, right? He may not get there in the timing that Mary and Martha want, but Jesus always shows up. Because Jesus is faithful to keep his promises. Jesus has promised to his followers, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But, but look what Martha wants. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is not a faith-filled cry. This is an accusation. If you weren't so slow, Jesus, Lazarus would still be living. 
If you showed up when we called you the first time, my brother would be alive, Jesus. You could have done this and you refused to do this. But what if Jesus wanted Mary and Martha to see that the greater good is not that their brother lives, but that Jesus is with them? What if Jesus wants to teach us in this room that the greater good in our lives is not circumstantial change or deliverance from our pain, but rather that Jesus promises to be with us in the middle of it? What if Jesus wants to prove to us, we sing the song all the time, that he is enough and that he is better What if he's moving slowly in our lives to meet our needs and deliver us from things? Or what if he refuses to deliver us from suffering at all simply because he wants to show us just how desperate we are and how our faith needs not to be in our circumstances but in him alone? How can we believe when it seems like God doesn't care? More on that later. Final question. How can we believe when we have unbelief? Look at verses 22 through 24 with me. But even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. All right, so Martha has just accused Jesus of being slow and and he's not there. And if he was there, Lazarus would be alive. And then she releases a statement that again, seems to be faith-filled at first glance. I know that whatever I ask of you, Jesus, you can do it. But here's what I believe. I believe this is a simple spiritual platitude from the mouth of Martha. What I mean by that is this is a statement that she is saying with her mouth, but her heart is far from believing. I know this because Jesus says to her, all right, your brother's gonna rise again. And she immediately defaults to, well, I know the Old Testament and I know that on the last day there's gonna be a resurrection, so I'm just gonna have to wait until eternity for this to happen. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about right here and now, your brother can be raised again, Mary and Martha, but she is just simply giving a spiritual platitude. Yeah, whatever, I know theology, God. I know Jesus, I've read, I've read some things, I know some things, it's whatever. How often have we been there? There's a type of unbelief in the scriptures that is marked by blasphemy and rebellion, and that is sinful, and we repent of that. But there is also a category of unbelief in the scriptures where we are struggling to believe the promises of Jesus. Maybe because we're suffering, maybe because people have sinned against us, maybe because we just live in a broken world, whatever it is. But there is a type of unbelief that is just marked by doubt because of the world we live in. And Jesus does not say that is sinful, He says, come to me in your doubt and unbelief. I mean, how often have we been there with these spiritual platitudes where we say things with our mouths because we know they're the right things to say, but our hearts are miles away from the confession of our mouths. Jesus, you are so good. We say it, but our hearts can't grasp it. Jesus, you are faithful. You're with me. 
We say it, but the lives that we lead tell a different story. Jesus, you love me. We say it, but the shame of our sin won't let us walk in receiving his love. Jesus, you give me peace. We say it, but the frenetic nature of our presence betrays the confession of our mouth. Just like Martha, we have this unbelief where our mouths say one thing and our hearts believe another thing and we are simply walking in spiritual platitudes. But look at the treatment that Jesus gives to Martha. Right, God, you can do it, whatever, do it. I, I, I kind of believe, but I don't really believe at all. Here's, here's how Jesus responds. You pathetic woman, how dare you? Who do you think you are with your doubt and your unbelief? Get away from me, you don't belong here. No. Not a condemning word from Jesus. Not a word from Jesus, get away from me. Not a word of how dare you. Not a word of I'm coming down hard on you, Martha. Jesus never condemns our belief even if it's a spiritual platitude, right? Jesus gives a reassuring word to Martha. Your brother's gonna be fine. He's gonna live, trust me. So friends, what I'm saying in this is how can we believe when we don't have belief? We keep confessing with our mouths until eventually our hearts match up, okay? When you're suffering, when things are hard, when you're down, when you're struggling to believe, keep on praying. Pray until you pray. You know what I'm saying there? Pray until you actually pray. And keep on. Remember, Jesus is slow sometimes. He doesn't say, be prayerless when I'm slow. Keep coming, keep knocking. So sometimes we, we call these seasons of our lives desert seasons or dry seasons. And everyone that's from the desert feels like mocked by that. Like, the desert's not that bad. It's kind of bad. Um, we call it this desert season where I'm going to your word, Jesus, but it's just so dry. And don't give up. Don't give up. Even if your heart and your mouth are far, just keep, you know, Dory, just keep swimming, just keep, just keep going to the word, just keep going to the word, just keep going to the word. Eventually, you're gonna find that oasis in the middle of the desert. Standing and singing, confessing and praying, taking communion, showing up to church, getting in community, continuing to serve, all of this, even if our mouths and our heart are far apart, if we keep pressing in, eventually those two things are going to be aligned because Jesus is faithful to meet us in our unbelief. He does not condemn us, but rather he says, thank you for continuing to come to me. Thank you for continuing to believe me. Eventually he will breakthrough. How can we believe when we have unbelief? So there's all this tension in John chapter 11. God, how can I believe when common events in my life continue to go bad? How can I believe when suffering marks my existence? God, how can I continue to believe when it seems like you just don't care about me? You don't hear me. You're not near to me. God, how can I believe when my mouth and my heart are far from each other and I just have unbelief? What do we do with all this? Friends, our gospel call 
is not a call to believing in an abstract principle. Our gospel call is not a call to believing in a set of events or actions. Our gospel call is a call to believe upon a person. The gospel call is the call of Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. Look at verse 25 with me. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. I have risen. I will rise from the dead. That's what Jesus is saying to Martha. I put death to death. Jesus murders death. (laughs) Death has been swallowed up into victory. Jesus has taken the sting of death so that if you believe upon him, you too will rise from the grave. Jesus has put death to death. It's not just that though. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just possess life. He doesn't just give life. He is Life. Jesus is life. And for the Christian, belief in Jesus is life eternal. So, what is our belief about? Where do we direct our belief? Just like Martha. Yes, Lord, I believe you. Not a set of events, not an abstract principle, not getting everything right. I believe you. I believe my feelings, Jesus. I believe about, you know, whether or not you care about me. I gauge my belief on on how strong my faith is. None of that is the gospel call. The gospel call is a weak and feeble belief in a strong and powerful savior where your feelings do not govern how faithful he is. Where how much you think he cares about you changes whether or not he cares about you. Whether or not you can muster up the right type of faith where your your heart and your mouth are aligned. If your belief is in Jesus, your belief is enough because Jesus is enough and he has been resurrected and so too will you. He has defeated death and he is in life eternal and so too will you. So how can I believe when things go bad? I'm gonna live forever. Friends, the cross did not have the final word. How terrible would it be if we had a Good Friday service? And by the way, it's gonna be like dark, okay? So just be aware of that. Um, We're gonna talk legitimately about the brutality of the crucifixion. How terrible would it be if we had that and we're like, don't ever come back again. That's where we're gonna end. The sour note of Good Friday. What if we ended there on the darkness of Good Friday? But the cross does not have the final word. The resurrection does. There's an empty tomb and an occupied throne and a risen savior who is ruling and reigning over all things. And because he is alive, you will be alive. And because he has given you hope, you have it forevermore. So when things go bad, the bad things in your life do not have the final word. This too shall end. 
everything we're facing now, whatever it is, is light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory we will have in Christ Jesus. And I know, again, that probably, if you're suffering right now, it sounds a little bit like a spiritual platitude. Yeah, but I'm still suffering. Friend, grip to your future hope. This too shall end. And one day your mouth and heart are gonna line up. How do I believe when things are gonna go bad? I believe I'm going to live because Jesus lives and suffering does not have the final word. Suffering will give way to victory in my life. And by the way, if, if life here and now is as good as it gets, right, your best life now, how terrible will heaven be? We can outpromise anything Joel Osteen's gonna promise you. Joel Osteen promises you your best life now, I'll promise you your best life to come, which is in Christ Jesus. For eternity, not for 75 years. That's off script, I'm back on track. Don't listen to him, seriously, he's a heretic. I'm serious, That's not, don't laugh about that. When it seems like God doesn't care, how can I believe? How much does God care about you? God cares enough about you that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the very righteousness of God. Jesus, at the right time, died for his enemies. Everyone in this room, hand up. Enemies to God in our sin, but he's the one who came to die for his enemies and be raised to life for his enemies so that enemies could be turned into friends and that we could live with him forever. He is the resurrection and the life. How much does God care about you? He took care of your universal, cosmic, forever problem, which is your open rebellion to him. He took care of that. He saved you. He adopted you. And he will be with you forever. And you now call the God of the universe Father. That's how much he cares about you. How do I believe when I don't really feel like believing? When you doubt, Christian, look back at the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is not a made-up event. The resurrection is a real, historical, actually happened, certain reality. And if it is true, then my belief is not in vain. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Everything I believe about Jesus and all of his promises are validated by his resurrection. So how do I believe when I don't have belief? Look back at the resurrection and teach your heart what is true and eventually it'll catch up. All of this reminds me of the classic song, Because He Lives. And here's what this song teaches us. In the gospel, in Jesus, your future is always better than your past. Look at the lyrics. God sent his son they called him Jesus. He came to love and heal and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow, even if events turn bad. Because he lives, all fear is gone when it seems like he doesn't care. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. And then one day I'll cross the river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. 
Looking forward to that day. And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory and I'll know he lives. The whole purpose of the Gospel of John, the whole purpose of this I Am sermon series is to be confronted with who Jesus is and to draw us to faith. The question is, just like Martha got asked, do you believe? Do you believe? Pray with me. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has indeed tasted death so that we can have life forever. That he has taken our shame and put it on a cross. He has taken our sin and buried it in a tomb. He has been raised to new life and when we believe upon him, we step into forgiveness of sins, life eternal, and relationship with you. I pray whoever in this room is far off, would you draw them near and grant them the gift of belief? I pray for those of us who are weary and having trouble believing, would you grant us belief? I pray for those of us who are suffering, would you grant us belief, not in circumstantial change, but in the fact that you are with us in the dark night? I pray for those of us who are hardened. Would you soften our hearts and give us belief? I pray for those of us who are stuck in sin. Would you deliver us from sin and grant us belief? Jesus, would you show us that you truly are the gospel, that you are our inheritance, you are our life, you are our joy, you are our hope, you are our peace. Not changes in our lives, but you alone. Help us to set our eyes upon you and to never lose our focus to put our gaze upon you and stay there in worship and wonder and awe. I pray for my friends in this room who are suffering. God, would you be near to them today? Would you show yourself to be faithful? Would you give them a reassuring promise? And would you show all of us just how much you love us? In Jesus' name, amen.